name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Holy Mary Mother, Mother of God, God pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Christ is risen. Risen indeed. Risen indeed. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Brethren in Christ, welcome to The Meaning of Catholic. I'm Timothy S. Flanders. I am the chief editor and founder of The Meaning of Catholic. I'm joined today by Meaning of Catholic contributor Kennedy Hall and patron and friend of Meaning of Catholic, Axel Gomez. Axel, how are you doing, brother? I'm doing awesome. How are you? Welcome to The Meaning of Catholic. <laughs> We're really happy to have you. Axel is a seven, almost eight-year veteran of the United States Navy. And we're going to talk tonight about men and militarism. Mm. Um, if you have children, your boys are likely playing guns and cops and robbers and all sorts of things like that. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about the, about the military. And we're going to get into it. Part of this is a series on Catholic masculinity as a part of the release of Kennedy's new book, Ten Terror of Demons, Reclaiming Traditional Catholic Masculinity. And part of this book goes into militarism. Page 135, Catholicism is a manly religion. It is a fighting religion. Every member of the body of Christ is called from the devil's camp at baptism. We are promoted at confirmation and receive fighting strength in the Eucharist. Orders are commanded to us by the priest and the confessional that we are to go and sin no more. Let no one fool you. We are not pacifists and we are called to holy violence. Like Christ who cleansed the temple, showing us the power of the rosary in his knotted scourge, we too are called. The When the uh, Christopher Plant pointed out to me that uh, when the word Greek word mysterion was translated into Latin, they used the word sacramentum, which means military oath. Hmm. And so these sacraments have this military concept to it. And you see it in the traditional rite of confirmation, you get the slap from the bishop. Right. which is is basically your uh, your slap to get into the battle get in the game so so, so uh, Axel let's talk about your military career so you were in the United States Navy for eight years now that was that right out of high school that you joined yes yeah, this is right out of high school so when I graduated in 2011 I went through a whole summer of getting a job at a, a pizza parlor. And then I was discerning the military in between then um, through the fall and through the winter. And I finally went to the recruitment office in the Navy. And we did, a whole, we did the whole process with um, entering in the military service. There's a lot that goes on in, in the recruitment process. You gotta meet weight standards, you gotta meet um, you know, make sure you're not using any drugs. You gotta actually be uh, smart. But I mean, I mean that you gotta you gotta have an ASVAP score, a minimum ASVAP score to enter the Navy. So, um, and what what made you consider going to the military? So I I wanted to go to college. However, since it was really expensive and I didn't have any funding, I thought, you know what, joining the military that definitely definitely give me some benefits. So I can just go through uh, like a four-year, five-year contract and then use the VA benefits and get paid while going to school and get financial aid. 
Uh, so you, you you signed up for a five-year contract. Did you renew that then for this the whole almost eight years? Is that how that worked? Depends on your job in the military. My my job had a minimum five-year obligation. Okay. And then I, re I re re-enlisted three years after okay. my five years were over. So it was an overall positive experience in the military. If you re-enlisted, you were... You know, this was a positive thing for you. You didn't go out and go to college. I mean, it's it's it was for the most it has its highs and lows with the military service. So, okay. and you know what? I always tell those in the military while I was in, you got to give it at least two tries, two tours before making your final decision to separate from the military because you cannot base your career decision out of one station. Because what I've seen is. Usually they're not bad commands, just bad leaders. So it really depends on the leaders that how they set the stage for the command, command climate, okay. etc. Okay. Can you flesh that out a little bit? Because one of the questions a Catholic might have about the military is, uh, you know, the United States foreign policy. They may disagree with the way things are going, or the corruption, or whatever the military, or that this or that. You know. Um, can you speak more to that and concerns that people might have about the military? What you were just saying, you know, leadership versus command. Can you can you elaborate more on that? Sure. So leadership is is a smaller uh, group of individuals compared to uh, the, the rest of the Kadir, per se. So from like there's there's ranks. So from E one to E four, there's it comprises at least 50% of the workforce. So, and then you got the rest of the uh, ranks to manage uh, the subord their subordinates. So you got the, I'd say there's like three levels. There's like E1 through E4, they take or they receive orders. So they got to follow orders. And then you got your E5s to like E9s and they, they're their management. So they manage the mission that they're given in their command. And you got your officers that they create policies, they execute policies, they, they do all sorts of, you know, they'll do a lot of office work and usually they have to exercise more leadership than would be a E1 through E4. So for foreign policy, um, while I was in the military, there was no, um, I'd say there was in, very much talk about that because we know what we signed up for. It's a blank check to the government. We're given four years of our lives and then we swore an oath. You got to obey the orders of those appointed over you. And, you know, part of the oath, you got to realize that you got to fight against the enemies, both foreign and domestic. Right. And, and thank you for your service to the country, Axel. Oh, you're um, welcome. Absolutely. Um, it's no matter what I think, no matter what uh, is going on, we always owe service members as well as domestic, like, you know, police and firemen always thanks and gratitude for laying, putting their life on the line for something greater. Um, and did you always, or did you ever want to go into the military as a boy when you were younger? Anything like that? When I was, yeah, when I was, a boy, I wanted to be a firefighter or an astronaut, maybe a paleontologist. I was into dinosaurs. I think most boys are into dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. Always, 
the digging for you know skeletons and when they go play I, I remember doing that i used to dig a lot because i thought i'd find a, a dinosaur bone somewhere mm-hmm. um but then you know things for things change while you go through adolescence you get through high school and you start to really see where you want to set your foot in the door and part of that is just being a, ser- a servant just serve give your service to somebody else to your nation so that's a big part of my discernment to join military is also to serve the nation that's giving me this opportunity and i'd like to uh get back to boyhood and violence in a moment but mm-hmm. actually let me ask you a few more questions and uh how what did you, what have you learned what how has the military impacted you as a catholic man in particular what has that done for you i reverted back to the faith back in 2019-18 so i owe it to the military to send me to italy because i chose i chose those uh station orders and i went to the heart of catholicism and you know this is no accident i think this is god's grace god's placement to show me that you know he's he's sovereign and he will definitely um definitely choose me out of my sins and that's where it really impacted me as a catholic because i was you know i was baptized as a catholic and i got my confirmation as an infant Mm-hmm. And I never went through catechism. See, my, my parents were most like cultural Catholics. So they didn't get me through catechism. We didn't go to church every Sunday. I remember just going once or twice my whole life. Mm-hmm. So I guess just being placed outside your comfort zone, outside your hometown and going to another place and getting to know the other culture, the Italian culture. I love the Italian. I was in Naples, Italy. So I, I really like their culture. I mean, at first, you have to get really used to their culture. It's a little like um, a culture shock. But then after one year, two years, is you feel like you're at home with uh, Neapolitans. Yeah, right on, right <laughs> on. Uh, and so, what what are can you tell us about some of the downsides? What are the what are some of the dangers, maybe uh, either to your faith or otherwise, or just sort of downsides or difficulties that you encounter <laughs> being in the military. Military is a melting pot of different faiths. Also, di- people don't believe either. So there's some atheism in the military. Um, so you definitely get people who blaspheme. Uh, they misuse the God's name. Um, there's also this culture of sexual harassment. We always get trained on uh, training. the training on sexual harassment, suicide. Um, destructive decisions, drinking and driving. Um, act, uh, there's something called an ARI, alcohol-related incidents. So this, that's a big push for the military to train their their members to be more responsible when they uh, when they use alcohol. So it's, it is a big challenge for a devout Catholic. But you know, you gotta be the witness to them and um, show them that you know you you are. You are within Christ, and then you, you can show them what that means. You personify, you become that witness, and they even might convert. Yeah, right on. I, I want to. I thought of uh, giving a shout out to Father Hailman and his uh, World War One standard issue rosary that you can buy. He has this replica. Replica. They used to issue these to American Catholic soldiers back in World War One. 
And I wanted to ask you, Axel, about uh, what is the attitude of command and sort of the government and the, you know, the armed forces leadership towards religion in general? Is there that the same animosity that you kind of get from a lot of government officials in the civilian world? Is that kind of also in the leadership in the, in the armed forces or is it different? The military is neutral. Um, I think there's more heavy uh, Christians in in the military. Um, But they always maintain neutrality as the organization, the military organization as a whole. Um, But, you know, you get different Americans and you different uh, Christians and nobody goes against your faith within the military. There's always, you know, just like going in a high school cafeteria, there's always cliques. There's right, always right. there's always people that, that you want to surround yourself with. You know, you want to surround yourself with um, other Christians. You want to surround yourself with other friends who like to go out or other friends that want to go traveling. So there's always those groups that have their own interests. Sure. Okay. So let's talk about boyhood and violence. Uh, Kennedy, you have three boys. Mm-hmm. Um, how many times a day or a week do they participate in vicious boyhood violence? Vicious boyhood violence. Uh, well, there's, uh, I don't know, how many times per hour is probably the question. <laughs> um, we actually, the other night we had a video of them wrestling and we were watching them for about 30 minutes. Like my, my youngest son is uh, nine months old or something. So he doesn't, he barely crawls yet. The oldest two boys are three and a half and four and a half. And I swear um, last summer when my youngest son was born, uh, my oldest son went and stayed with some friends for a little bit for like three days. And the three-year-old hadn't seen him and he was like, where's my brother or whatever. And then when they finally saw each other after that long two-day absent absence, which was like the longest of their life, uh, they started to hug and then immediately started to punch each other in the stomach. So, and no one had to train them to do that. It just sort of happened. Um, yeah, they love the uh, rough stuff. And um, to be honest, um, it's kind of the interesting thing to see is is watching them find their limits. And um, there's a lot to it than that. So they'll go over the line and they'll come back over the line. Um, they're playing a game and everything's all good. And then someone basically goes above the neck and someone gets like a scratch or something like that, you know, and that's, it's really fun to watch them do that. But yeah, it's just, it's part of who they are, I guess. Yeah. I, I've, so my, uh, my eldest son is four and then I've got almost two year old. Um, and there, the gap is a little bit higher than yours. So the, uh, the physical dynamic can be difficult but my two-year-old has just become big enough to at least put up a fight so right. <laughs> um we always do i don't like what you're saying it i know that i heard jordan peterson once commenting about the so-called rough and tumble play or whatever yeah. that they talk about psychologists mm-hmm. i know they're wackos but sometimes they get things right um jordan peterson as a psychologist gets a lot right i think but he does uh, he, he talks about how the rough and tumble play is so fundamental to a boy's life because of those limits and yeah. like we do me and my boys we just actually we just fight we throw punches and then uh but but he can't my 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 one boy can't fight his 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 brother he can't throw punches at his brother you gotta throw punches at me right um but we gotta be uh tough like a man is what i try 
trying to impress on them to be able to take the punch as well. Um, but there, but Jordan Peterson, what I heard him commenting once about that rough and tumble and, and the idea of showing, uh, exerting your aggression and allowing that out, but also learning the self-control because of the limits right. and the importance of that. Um, <clears throat> and it's important that they learn it when they're young, because, um, the thing is, is they can't really hurt each other when they're little kids. I mean, they're not that strong. Um, they don't really, they just can't really hurt each other in a real way. I mean, it's, uh, it's a scary thing when two, like, you know, 30 year old men are, are getting rough with each other outside of a sporting atmosphere, let's say. And that's a problem because there's a, there's a real risk of harm. Right. Um, but when little kids do it, I mean, they're wailing one second because they got poked in the eye or something like that. And then the next minute they're laughing and smiling and playing again. And, and, and they don't have enough uh, arm strength and upper body strength that they can do much to each other in that way. So it's interesting to watch them pretty much give it all they have and then still be okay. So it's good to learn that as a young person rather than have that pent up aggression and not know how to do that. And when you get bigger, you get into trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Axel, what, what are your thoughts on boys and violence? Why are boys violent? I know that there's a, there's a strong push in many public schools if you have the misfortune to go to a public school, but um, there's many, um, many a big push that really feminizes boys to a great extent. I know Kennedy talks about this in his book where, um, you know, kids are diagnosed with ADHD, these boys, but they're just kind of just being normal boys, you know, and, right. and they are, they're not allowed to do anything aggressive whatsoever. There's, there's, you know, competition itself is suppressed. You know, there's no winners and no losers and all this nonsense. So Axel, what do you have to say? What's the, uh, why are boys so violent? Uh, obviously why is that not a problem per se? Can you speak to that at all? Sure. I believe, I believe God infuses protective instincts in boys. Hmm. Um, men are both biologically and physiologically stronger, bigger, more aggressive than their female counterparts. So, and primordial history shows that we used to organize ourselves in tribes and we will defend, uh, we defend ourselves against other tribes that are, are rivaling and they're seeking to conquer via resources and they look to take our territory and when stuff happens like that you need to start defending your your own territory you gotta men are called to defend and you sometimes go to the offensive in your own interest in the interest of the tribe and then sooner or later as time goes on these tribes turn to turn into city states and to our nations and also it's also an evolutionary um reason too women choosing mates that are protective to protect them and their offspring. So that's what I think. I think there's so many things going on about boys instinctively being protective. Yeah. The, uh, I think there's sort of, yeah, biological instinct in a woman to want a man who is strong. That's why mm -hmm. physical strength is something that's attractive. It's sort of attractive because it provides something it provides protection. And it is remarkable the the instinct in a boy because even my four year old boy does things that are protective of his brother or sister, <laughs> and 
I, I mean, he's just not young enough to really understand or have me to explain what that means exactly, but he just sort of does it. And it's, mm-hmm. it's quite remarkable that he does have that instinct. That's a really good point. I think um, what's interesting is there is in the fall or before the fall, rather, there is this command to till the garden or there's God put the man in the garden to till the garden to work the garden. So there's this sort of this work before the fall and then there's the work after the fall. Right. And my question is if you and Kennedy and actually you guys can comment on this, is there a, is there a violence before the fall or is violence only a product of the fall, sort of a redemptive violence sort of thing? Uh, Kennedy, what do you think? Well, I think it'd be helpful if we qualified what we mean by the word violent. Um, we don't really have good control of our passions, most of us. I mean, right. in general, men, women, doesn't matter, whatever age. I mean, whether it's to do with our food or to do with our anger, to do with our um, emotions in general. I mean, we just don't have very good control over that. So when we think of violence, we usually, we tend to think of something like um, rage. You know, we tend mm-hmm. to think of something like um, uh, just getting ticked off and then doing something to get even, right? But uh, in reality, I don't have a dictionary in front of me, but um, there's a reason why in scripture, and I'm going to go specifically to what Jesus does in the temple after the wedding at Cana. And one part's that one part that's missed a lot. It's really simple. It's really easy to miss it is he goes from the wedding at Cana and he goes to the temple and he sees that um, basically they're selling, um, they're selling the, um, the animals and things like that for sacrifice, but they're selling them in the court of the Gentiles, which there's a prophetic thing there, which is basically this idea that they're keeping, um, they're keeping the Gentiles away from being a part of salvation. So there's a typology there. Um, but also just on the surface level, they're using the temple to be a place, uh, a marketplace, which is not appropriate. It's supposed to be outside of the, out of the temple, not in the temple. Okay. Now, when Jesus sees this, what he does is it says, he went and made a whip of knotted cords, or he went and made a, uh, yeah, a whip of knotted cords or something like that. Well, what that means is that Jesus saw something that was very unjust, something that was happening that was blasph- blasphemous, sacrilegious, etc. something that was blocking God's grace. And he took the time to remove himself from the situation. And he took, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 minutes. I don't know how long it takes to sit there and use implements and make a knotted cord, but it's not something that happens in an instant. And then with full control of his reason, with full control of his passions, he came back to the situation and then acted in the way that he had deemed most appropriate, which for him was a violent reaction. Um, And obviously we trust Jesus' judgment because he's perfect. (laughs) But what it shows us is that, yes, there is a way to have tempered, reasoned, and proper violence um, when there is a matter of justice and injustice. Okay. Um, so it is possible that there could have been at least the, the possibility for violence before the fall. Um, you could even say, for example, that when Adam saw the serpent, um, that it would have been appropriate for him to have some sort of violent reaction to that. Perhaps it could have been a spiritual violence. You know, I, I, I don't have enough of a theological background to think about how he would have dealt with a metaphysical being like the devil, okay, taking mm-hmm. on a, a physical form. But nonetheless, we also see this in heaven, where St. Michael is called to lead an onslaught against Lucifer and the other fallen angels. So I think there's precedent for it. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe there's there is a uh, concept of violence uh, as a control or a use of the irascible appetite because right. the irascible appetite is created by God. It's not a creation of the fall. The irascible appetite has the emotions of anger, which are a part of violence. I just looked up violence. Mm-hmm. It comes from uh, violencia in Latin, which means vehement, mm-hmm. aggressive, impetuous. And there's definitely a a certain amount of the irascible appetite there because there is the irascible appetite also has perseverance okay, and that type of thing, you know, fortitude uh, or that's tied to it because you're using the strength and the aggressiveness to attain the arduous good. That's what perseverance is, attaining the arduous good. And I, so I like what you're saying in terms of St. Michael uh, willing the arduous good of right. casting Satan out of hell and the violence before the fall. And there's even, even without Satan, there's sort of a violence, an aggressiveness, a irascible perseverance in some sense because it's, I mean, is it, is it an arduous good to attain to God even in heaven before the fall? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's an infinite good, an infinite uh, beatific vision. I don't know. Um, but that that's a that's a profound thought. Um, thinking about that, uh, Axel, you got any thoughts on that? Well, I'm not really competent in this theology, but I can speculate. Um, I don't. Perhaps there wasn't like the violence we know today before the fall, because um, I know men had original innocence and sanctifying grace. So there was no necessity of, of escalating the escalation of force. So we have that in the military, especially right. when you're in security, you have an escalation of force. There's five levels and the fifth level is use of deadly force. So this is, it is a byproduct of the, after the fall. Um, and I will say that violence does not equal evil. Right. Due to like, if you have extraordinary circumstances where you have to use deadly force, I think that's the confusion we I, I see. I, the tendency in a, in our modern culture is equating evil with or violence with evil, but it that it doesn't always the case. Right. Yeah, that reminds me of a book that's called "When Violence Is the Answer," mm-hmm. and it's all about tr- it's all about assessing a situation and determining when violence is the answer basically. And he, this argument, I forgot the author's name, but he was an art of manliness once. And he was just discussing that, that when violence, violence is the answer when the communication between you and an aggressor has evaporated so that you're no longer able to basically have a conversation or communicate and discuss and try to resolve a situation using reason, basically Mm -hmm. using communication and then when the communication is broken down and there's just a wall and you know mm-hmm. that the aggressor is going to continue with whatever aggression he is, that's when violence becomes necessary. So I, I wondered if you could speak to that more, Axel, and discuss what, what is this escalation of violence? Because I see a parallel with what, what Kennedy was just saying in terms of our Lord sort of escalating violence, essentially. He's sort of using this reasoned, uh, uh, patient way of uh, making this weapon himself and then using it. That's sort of the escalation of violence. Can you explain what are these five levels? How does that, uh, how does that break down? So level one, there's a, you gotta be present. So you gotta, you gotta show yourself to, to the aggressor. 
You gotta be, you gotta have that, you know, that bearing. Like you're right there. You know, you you come here and you mean business. And if it's if he's if the aggressor still persistent, you start telling them commands. Hey, stop doing this. Be they're called verbal commands. That's level two verbal commands. Start commanding the assailant, the aggressor, that what they're doing needs to stop. If that doesn't work, you go to level three. Those are soft techniques. You can use OC spray, um, wrist locks. Um, you start to put down the the assailant who's being who's aggressing and disturbing the peace. If still that doesn't work, you can go to level four. It's hard techniques, and you know Jesus uses the whips and it starts taking down the the tables and he starts taking down and then for for security now taking down the assailant, taking down the 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 aggressor, and then you get to level five, which is like the last resort means you've expanded all four levels and you still haven't detained the user and then you have to use deadly force but it's all but then if you're gonna use deadly force there's eight conditions to that will justify the use of deadly force so do you guys want to uh, hear about yeah, the eight conditions please. okay please yeah so the, the first condition is inherent right of self-defense for example active shooter attempting to kill you Second condition, defense of others. Example, active shooter attempting to kill civilians. Condition three, assets vital to national security. An example, terrorists trying to steal highly classified information. Condition four, inherently dangerous property. Example, a terrorist trying to steal weapons or ammo. Condition five, national critical infrastructure. So if a terrorist is trying to destroy a power plant or he's putting like poison in the water system, okay, you, you can use deadly force because he's going to, I mean, that does the water system drink from that. Right. Uh, condition six, serious offenses against persons. So an example would be someone attempting, even attempting murder, not just the act itself, but just the attempt. Armed yeah. robbery and aggravated assault. Condition seven, escape. So if an escaped mass murderer from a detention facility is out in the loose and you have the you have you're authorized to use deadly force of a mass murderer that escapes. And the last condition is arrest and apprehension. So uh, like a suicide bomber. Someone someone's gonna bomb a local a mall, then you have you have you're justified to use deadly force. You know there's a, there's a bomber gonna right. detonate. So okay. these are military. These are these are military conditions. I think they carry well with the civilian uh, side. Right. So the so any one of those conditions are present. Do you go straight to level five? Is that what that means? Uh, yeah, I, I could actually skip like those the the levels when you're escalating force. If you see one of those conditions from the from the, using deadly force, then you can skip all that right. escalation because then right. you know, you're not you're not gonna take the time go to every condition every. Uh, level of force but because it's already deadly it's manifestly right. deadly so you right. gotta respond deadly right makes sense yeah and that i mean that's like the i'm sure that the law enforcement the civilian you know police law enforcement have much of the same requirements and they they go through all sorts of different training to be able to use deadly force and to right. have the responsibility to engage in that and in in the united states we have an issue where we have Obviously, with any system involving fallen man, 
there are always abuses no matter how perfect you make the training and everything. So there's always right. going to be some abuse somewhere with some corrupt cop or whatever. So then you get one corrupt cop who makes an error or does something wrong. And then the media blows that up. And then we've got a whole situation where people are revolting against law enforcement as such instead of, right. okay, this is a corrupt law enforcement officer or whatever. And he, he sinned or he did some injustice or he murdered someone or whatever, whatever he did was wrong and it needs to be punished or whatever. <clears throat> but then there's a, this revolt against law enforcement itself, which is just, it, which is very sad because, you know, what are you going to do when you, when you do need to call nine one one or whatever, or, you know, we're, we're talking about military, you know, we do have a serious military situation or a threat or whatever to the national sovereignty or whatever that's that makes military action necessary. So it is very unfortunate that there is such an emotionalization because the media is the enemy of the people. They don't, they don't care about uh, information. They care about your emotions and your money. So that's just me on my soapbox here about that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, I, we, we need to really respect, respect and honor law enforcement and servicemen. I, I, Definitely feel very strongly about it. What, what's it like in Canada, Kennedy? Do you have uh, George Soros-funded uh, um, protests and whatnot? No, no. We uh, Canada's not as much of a protesty kind of place. I mean, there's pros and cons to the American and Canadian approaches. I mean, right now, I'm a little bit envious that even in places like Michigan, where things have been pretty tough with the lockdown. There's still enough people that are willing to kind of go out, get after it, and do what they have to do in order to get their businesses back and things. Mm -hmm. um, in Canada, that doesn't really happen. I mean, it's not that we don't have a um, it's not that we don't have a populace that is um, willing to do the hard thing for what they think is right. It's just that we don't have this national, I want to say, folklore almost or mythology of revolution. We just don't have it. Um, and once again, there's pros and cons to that because you can go too far the other side or whatever. Um, but as far as our approach to our respect for the military and stuff, it's very similar. We um, we call it Remembrance Day in uh, November, November 11th. You call it Memorial Day or was that Veterans Day? What's, what's what you Yeah, it's you Veterans Day. It's also Armistice Day. And yeah, that's what it's, it's Armistice Canada. Day. Yeah, right. Um, <clears throat> Canada, I mean, we were... If Canada actually, landed on the beach on D-Day. Yeah, and if you actually look at um, like per capita from from uh, World War One and World War Two, I think we have a higher death rate in per, per capita World War One mm. for sure because we were still highly linked with the British. Of course, we were in there longer, um, but we were we were fighting wars with the British in the Boer War, which was in South Africa in nineteen oh turn of the century. Um, we were involved in all those things overseas, and so there is a very strong military history in Canada. It's very Scottish. So whenever there's anything to do with the military, there's always bagpipes and there's always kilts. And you'll always hear, um, you know, Highland Cathedral or was it Glasgow Cathedral? Beautiful Highland music. It's wonderful. Um, and and there is a, a great respect for law enforcement here, for sure. And it's pretty good. I mean, Canada is not really known for having crazy abuses of law enforcement. Um, I'm sure they happen. But um, like most Canadians, there's an insistence on being polite, I guess, even amongst law enforcement. So, yeah. Right on. Yeah. So let's talk violent imagery in the scriptures. My, my big, uh, 
my my biggest uh, annoyance, yeah, annoyance with the Novus Ordo started when I was praying the Divine Office as a when I wanted to be a Benedictine mon monk, and I found that they had removed so many violent verses from the Liturgy of the Hours, right? And they had cited some kind of psychological problem. I, I've heard of I've heard of Christians back when I was a Protestant who started reading the Old Testament and they nearly lost their faith because of all this violence in the Bible. Oh, wow. And because, you know, they if they're brought up with, you know, this sort of idea that it's all about warm fuzzies. Very pacifist. Yeah. Right. And then it's just all, all this uh, effeminate, psychological, warm, fuzzy feeling, whatever. That's what it's all about. And then you start reading the old, and then you're freaked out about this. So, um, what's with all the violence in the Bible? Um, Axel, I know you looked up a lot of verses um, pertaining to this because we've got, I mean, some people say that the Old Testament is violent and the New Testament's warm and fuzzy. Um, there's that. And then there's actual wars going on, too, in the Old Testament, commanded by God. Um, what do we make of all this violence? What do you guys think? I think that God deputizes his nation to carry out justice. Hmm. So I know there's the book of Joshua. That's the, the whole book is about conquering their promised land from the Jebusites, the Ammonites, and it's is is justified. Um, God promised them the land. And I think what's not helping our sensibilities is because we live in a a highly populated. There's a lot of Christian believers now. They we believe in the Triune God, and then but back then in Israel, back then in ancient time, on the time of Moses, they were the minority. They were a small nation compared to the polytheism surrounding them, so they had to answer aggressively so that's the context we need to look at the historical context yeah yeah and what i will think uh we're going um kennedy well i was just going to say um <laughs> we we there's a lot of violence in the old testament um but there's mm -hmm. the, the the various cultures that are interacting are heinously violent i mean if you look at what the um you know the various the various uh, idols and things that are being worshipped, Moloch, etc. I mean, they they required things like basically child sacrifice and whatever. And and you know when you're dealing with a society or a group of people or a government, whatever, where um, things like that are the norm, your reaction is going to probably have to be a little bit severe. Because unfortunately, I'm not. I don't have any personal experience with this. I guess I'm lucky. Um, but when you interact with people who believe in things like child sacrifice as some sort of governmental norm, usually they're not very reasonable. Um, so you know, it makes sense that there would be an escalation. Um, just like you talked about in your stipulations for using deadly force, mm -hmm. if it's a societal norm where there's always one of those eight, you know, uh, justifications, then it seems like the reaction is justified. That being said, though, the Bible is very good. Obviously, it's very good because it's 
Holy Ghost inspired it. But it's very in the pages. Uh, it's clear when um, people make mistakes. It's clear when uh, a soldier goes too far or when he does something that is just out of his passion. It's clear when when God's warriors are acting justly and it's clear when they're acting unjustly, which mm -hmm. is to show us a portrait of, of, of uh, how to deal with it with our fallen human nature. Yeah, I know the, the, the New Testament certainly strongly spiritualizes violence, right. obviously, as sort of the true violence, probably, right. um, we'll say the the real, our, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the principality of darkness. Right. So it's the real fight is not a physical one, but there is plenty of violence in that in that category. Uh, but there's also another part of the New Testament that was removed from the new lectionary is the case of Ananias and Sapphira, right? Who, who dropped dead right. at the words of St. Peter. Mm -hmm. So God just kills them. God yeah. slays them, as the Old Testament would say. But that was removed from the lectionary during Paschal Tide, as it's written or as, as it's read in the new new lectionary. Book of, Book of Acts. There's also the apocalypse, of course, which is right. quite quite violent. Uh, lots of violence and war there, making uh, f coming from heaven to the evildoers and all sorts of things. And there's also eternal punishment. Right. Uh, our Lord speaking on eternal punishment constantly. Uh, so one can see a lot of violent things in the New Testament that they're often. Um, successfully passed over by James Martin and his crew. Um, the I want to talk about... Um, do you guys know anything about rites of passages? A little bit, yeah. The it's uh, I, I think it's an interesting concept in the cultural anthropological history where many different cultures have had some sort of rite of passage for boys where they they're 15 or whatever and they're beat up and they're told to defend the village and whatnot they're they're you know they got uh the you know man up we had in, in our in our culture in the western culture they had um chivalry the knighthood the the whole concept of of that um the i i've i've been thinking about my own rite of passage for my sons as well. Um, I definitely want to do something like that. Kennedy, have you thought of all about uh, rite of passages? What do you think? Yeah, I was talking about it today with Tiller Marshall. Actually, um, I think we were today. We're last. Yeah, um, yeah. It's something. It's a women. Women naturally have a rite of passage. This is and this is this is what all of the uh, you know National Geographic kind of stuff you read, you know, about the different cultures around the world. Um, there's always a rite of passage for men in some capacity because women, generally speaking, naturally have a rite of passage. The great physical changes that they go through are, they cause a lot of suffering. It's very obvious when a young lady is becoming a woman. Um, and uh, in some ways, obviously that's very hard, but it also gives a lot of um, distinction to the different stages in life, which is very helpful. Um, for young men, it's not so simple. Um, so societies and cultures have always had um, 
whether it's like a fight they have to go through or whether it's something like they have to go hunting in a special way or whether it's they have to perform some sort of task of endurance or, or whatever it is. Um, but it's always physical. I think in Scotland, they do something like the man rock. Like you have to pick up a big stone. And as soon as you can finally pick that up, you know, um, there you go, which is interesting. Um, so I've thought about, I mean, how do we do that here? Uh, I think one of the ways that we can do it here is through sports. Um, I think it's not a coincidence that, um, you know, like high school football, sports like that, you know, when you start to get to that age of 13, 14, 15, you get into the real hard contact, whether it's football, hockey, rugby, whatever. Um, I think there's a reason for that. Um, but outside of that, I mean, I guess you'd have to do something like scouting. Maybe here in Canada, we have the cadets are pretty big for, you know, young people interested in the military. But you're going to have to find a way to create it for your own family because it's not something that happens as a cultural norm. Yeah, and a shout out to Taylor Marshall again because he he created the Troops of St. George, which yeah. is a scouting alternative because the Boy Scouts have drank a long draft of the Kool-Aid. And now they're not like, stuff. They're like the boy boy girl scouts now because they yeah. they have girls now i mean it's just a, a total not a, just <laughs> don't get me started about the scouts but troops of st george i there's a there's a local chapter of troops of st george in my <laughs> diocese and i've, I've been really oh, wow. excited to have that for my sons and i think what one of the greatest things about this um what about this whole program that taylor put into it is that the the father is involved right all the time the father mm -hmm. it, it's a father-son thing right. it's not like the boy scouts is like you drop off your kid and go and that was something that eric sammons was talking to him about in at a taylor marshall show again like um just the the importance of we have in catholic church we have this thing called youth ministry where we just get all the youth together and that's that has certain value but eric points out that the real impact is the parents particularly the father and when the father and the son and the father and daughter are, you know, having this connection on the faith, and that's really what makes the impact. Um, Axel, I wanted to ask you about Mexican culture, because something that I've always noticed, we just talked about women becoming ladies and sort of a natural sort of rite of passage. But in the Mexican culture, the quinceañeras are very big. They're very they big. Yeah, very big event. That's when, like you, like you were mentioning, like all the um, cultural Catholics show out the Mexican cultural Catholics, you know, who show up who may not come to church at all. I remember my, um, God bless him. We have this old priest in my diocese. Um, he's Polish, but he also knows Spanish. And so he would, he would always, the, the Mexicans would always come to our church for the quinceañeras and he would always make everybody go to confession and just, <laughs> and <laughs> preach to them and, you know, get, get them to fall in line. But I've always kind of wondered about that because there isn't, I mean, is there some kind of, a uh, male rite of passage in a because the quinceanera is so big culturally. Um, are there some sort of similar male or, or how, how does that uh, play out in the Mexican culture? Can you speak to that? I would say for males, it would be taking an apprenticeship on a trade. Hmm. I think that's a huge thing because I have a cousin. He He's in Mexico and he's learned how to be a mechanic. Because his father was a mechanic, so there's some lineage, the patronage, of going learning the trade of your fathers. Okay. So in Mexico, you have men following father's footsteps. There's also military. So boot camp is a rite of passage. Right. Uh, extensive rite of passage. Mm. Um, 
and within the church, I think um, I haven't been in the church that long, but it, I think when you investiture of, of brown scapulars for young men, they go through like a, a rite of passage about being prayerful, uh, loving our mother, uh, blessed Virgin. So you go through maybe a couple weeks of in doctrine, you know, learning the doctrines of right. prayer, being a prayerful uh, man, being a chaste man, being um, an honorable man to your mother and father. Then you show competence. You get in, you get invested with the brown scapular. So that's a good rite of passage in the church that I, I haven't seen in the church. I've been to four parishes in the last two years, and I haven't seen that. I mean, I've always seen the going through the the Catholic school system where you prepare for the sacraments, you prepare for right. the first communion, you prepare for uh, confirmation, usually there are retreats. And then once you go through the, the classes, you got your sacraments, but I've never seen anything like, you know, getting brown scapular. And for me, a brown scapular is like having dog tags. So this mm. is your, your the dog tags for your faith. Oh, yeah. So that's, and that's perfect image. Oh, you know, you know what? I, can you speak to the battle rhythm? That was something you were mentioning to me. We right. want to talk about that. What is the what is a battle rhythm? So when I was deployed, I remember going on a ship, a hospital, the U.S. Mercy, and when we go, when we arrived to our to an island, and we got to because I was I was in the construction trade in the military. So we prepared our supply, we got our, or our tools or our tools, and we put it in this container, a seven by seven by seven cubic container. And then we put it on the ship and we have our, our tools there. So we go on the ship. When we arrive to the, let's say I was in Fiji. So we, we, we arrived there and then our chief, he's like our, like the E7 in charge, like officer in charge. The enlisted officer in charge. So he gets to command our movement, command our, our work. So every morning when we get hit, like when we hit port, we always have our tools ready the night before. So we don't have to wake up too early and search for tools because we have our tools ready the night before. So basically a battle room is just like a structure, a routine that is fixed that, okay, when, when you wake up, you... You muster. You you have to show your face that you're awake. You didn't get in any trouble. You didn't fall off the ship. So those musters are important, just to make sure that you know that overboard is a huge problem, especially when you're under, underway in the sea. So you muster. You also can wake up earlier and you do your workout. A lot of my um, a lot of my friends in the military, we did that. We we worked out two hours. We wake up. Wake up's like five or six in the morning. So we wake up at four in the morning, we start working out, we do our hygiene routine, we brush our teeth. When we uh, we then put our uniform on, then we get our tools, then we, once we muster, we get our tools, we breakfast too, breakfast. We, after breakfast, we get our tools, we go down to a, a boat uh, outside the ship that takes us to shore, or we go through on the pier side, we exit the ship via the pier and go inland. And then we go drive to the work site, do our do our job there. You know, from Fiji, we were building schools. It's like a humanitarian mission. Um, nation building, building. We were building alliance, alliance with the country of Fiji, that partnership. 
because that's a big, big strategic uh, decision the military, our military does is we like to make alliances with, with nations. And then once we make alliances, we can establish bases. So we have local presence in these nations. So now getting back to, to the rhythm, we do our job in this work site. And then we're there for 10, 12, and 12 hour days sometimes when we work. And we, we have a schedule to meet with these projects. Usually when, when I went to the Tiali in Fiji, there was already a, a different uh, unit that's already started. So we were supporting them. We were supporting that unit. Once we get our work done, pack up, we drive back to the port, get back on the ship, eat dinner, get some liberty time, go to bed and start all over. Even you could even study in that liberty times because the big thing in the Navy was you should study your job and not for the exam. Because the big mistake military members use, do is they study two months prior to the exam date. Let's say the exam's in March and you go from January, February studying and you're, you're overloading, you're, you're, you're cramming everything. And that's why it's more better to study for the job throughout the year. And then once you get in your, once you start taking the test, it's not a problem. It's a, the test is like 180 to 200 questions. And it usually takes three to four hours to complete your test. So yeah, that's a routine. You get, you get a standardized routine, something fixed, because um, you don't want to just be laxed and, you know, being idle because um, that just creates um, laziness, it creates um, the idleness just creates this laziness and they want you to be really active and really get into the mission and accomplish the mission. Yeah. I love that, I love that. battle rhythm. That's it's just an excellent term talking about rule of life for a layman's, you know, citizen, civilian, husband, whatever, father battle rhythm. I love, I love thinking about a battle rhythm when I, I get off work and then I'm, juggling all the kids and you know battle rhythm getting up that's that's great that's just excellent i love that's that term, term. That's a good term. um i wanted to uh i want to touch on hierarchy uh, because i know actually you had mentioned to me about uh sort of the the importance of hierarchy chain of command uh the different types of militarism and uh the situation that we face there is an interesting article by father Dave Nix that he wrote, I think a year ago or so where he talked about why do trads hate each other <laughs> and uh, why do they fight with one another? And he basically talked, he had this, this image of a, some kind of wild stallion alpha male and how, when there's the strong alpha male, all the other cults fall in line. Yeah. And it's, there's sort of the same thing where we're dealing with uh, the Holy father, Pope Francis and, and, the issues and the dubia and all sorts of things on and on. And even before that, let's be honest, there's just been a lack of the strong paternal leadership right. in the sea of Peter, which has been, you know, taken off the tiara. There's not that same, uh, patriarchal, strong, powerful leadership. You know, I think that when, when the Pope steps up to the plate about that, all the men of the sons of God uh, rally to him. There's, there's this, there's this great story. They call it the ninth crusade where Pius the ninth 
was being threatened by the Italian revolutionaries in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. And there were volunteers that came across the globe to come and volunteer to fight in the Pope's army to defend him against these, these secular revolutionaries. Um, but there's an interesting concept of hierarchy because we live in the, in the Marxist feminist world where hierarchy itself is understood to be evil. And there's, I want to read this quote from uh, Carrie Gress. She wrote an excellent book called The Anti-Mary Exposed, Rescuing the Culture from Toxic Femininity. And uh, she basically makes this excellent argument and talks about how there is an antichrist. There's both an antichrist and the end of times. There's sort of an antichrist spirit. And she says there's also an anti-Mary. And the anti-Mary is basically feminism. She writes this very interesting comment about hierarchy. She says this, chapter two, competition is not the only thing to be avoided. So is nonconformity. Women operate on a fundamentally egalitarian model. One girl cannot be seen as to be superior to another. She's quoting a psychologist, Benson, not in plain sight, at least. These situations play themselves out every day in the workplace with significant proportion of women preferring not to work under another woman. A large percentage of women, Benison's reports, will not help a female subordinate unless there's some sort of quid pro quo, perhaps fearing that her own position would be threatened by a rising colleague. This egalitarian model is very different from the hierarchical model evidenced among men. Rather than seeing others, particularly subordinates, as competition, men have a more fundamental capacity to see how those, those with different gifts can be useful for the common good since, unlike women, they don't live with this sense of vulnerability. This is not to say that women don't have this capacity to see the good in others. They do. But this is a virtue they must more consciously develop. End quote. So I think Gress makes this really interesting point. Dr. Gress, she's a PhD, um, about egalitarianism and how hmm. there is this there. It's, it's sort of an interesting thing that I, I, I you know, I sort of see as growing up as a boy and how yeah. women have this very strong competition that's almost a bitter competition. You know, with men, there's a competitiveness and it can't be bitter, but it's a lot more playful. It's like, you know, fighting with each other. And and there is this hierarchy even among the boys, like the, the neighborhood boys in my neighborhood where there's uh, an alpha male that sort of leads everybody and they're OK with that. It's not. Uh, it's not a, a, as much of a bitter competition, um, which I think is really interesting. But we live in this feminist Marxist world where hierarchy itself is seen as evil. Everybody has to be totally equal, uh, egalitarian, equal outcomes. And I think that very much has to do with a lack of masculinity because there is this inherent hierarchical mindset, I think, Um Axel, what do you think about about this? You know, the military has a very strong hierarchy. Um, and can you talk talk more about what you were you were mentioning to me before about uh, the need for hierarchy in our situation? Yes, I see the situation as within our community, there are bands of militia that follow one leader within militias. And sometimes they, they would battle each other out over their doctrine, over their theolo theological positions. 
So I know I was telling you about uniting these militias, and I was listening to Steve Steve Skojek and his commentary on um, uniting the clans about who will who will be the William Wallace <laughs> within within our ranks that will make a dent in our in our community. <clears throat> and uh, when I saw Braveheart, William Wallace was trying to get support from the nobility. So that's, I think we need to get more support from the clergy about, especially within our, the, the groups, the militia groups to unite on a common cause and not a common enemy. We do have a common enemy, but we don't have a common cause. And first we need to find out what the common cause is or the common mission. And then we gotta find a common, a leader, a supreme commander with strategic skills and make movements and in, and make movements to strengthen our faith, strengthen the church, evangelize aggressively. But, but what I mean aggressively, more intrusively. So it's not violence. It's really getting into interrupting people's cycle of sin and tell them this won't lead you to eternal life. There is an afterlife. Mm-hmm. So, so we got to stop that cycle. And, what do you, what yes. do you, th- what do you think about Vigano and Schneider, or Burke as our leaders? What do you think? I think they, they're pretty strong leaders, in my opinion. If usually it's really decentralized in our community, so there's got to be a way to combine centralization and decentralization. So that that happens in the military. You got a command that's centralized, but they have other units supporting the centralized command. And then the, the commander, like commanding officer, gives the leaders of the, the individual units their own decision-making. But again, there's, there's gotta be communication, there's gotta be coordination to achieve their mission. So that's what's missing. We're missing some something that can send an organization that's centralized, but also keeping a decentralized un, units or the clans. But and and honestly, if our bishops can one one bishop can do that, I think we can uh, uh, we can rally around that. Yeah, it's lack of leadership, very difficult. Um, but I, right. I, it is great to read from these bishops. Um, like Vigano and Schneider, as they continue to denounce things that need to be denounced, and yeah. and show that leadership, that shepherd shepherding uh, from men of God. Kennedy, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it takes a bishop, um, Saint Athanasius, for example, during an Arian the Arian crisis. Um, not every bishop, obviously, had had gone Arian, but some of a good portion of them had, and a lot of them were at least not willing to do anything about it or were sympathetic to it. So it did take someone with heroic virtue to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen this in church history before. Um, Really, it's a hard thing to say, okay, who's going to be the leader based on, I don't know, based on human characteristics. Because if you look at Cardinal Burke and uh, Vigano, and you look at um, Schneider, even a guy like Cardinal Mueller has been pretty great lately. Um, 
they've all got their pros and they've all got their cons. I mean, Schneider is obviously amazing, but he's an auxiliary bishop. He doesn't have a jurisdiction. Um, that was the problem with Lefebvre, for example, in the 80s. I mean, he was a bishop without a diocese, so he could only go so far. Um, uh, uh, Vigano is obviously an archbishop, but I mean, he probably has a titular diocese somewhere, but he doesn't have a jurisdiction that he's operating over. And also, he's obviously kind of on in hiding in a lot of ways. Um, Mueller's kind of a cardinal without a mandate at the moment, and Cardinal Burke has kind of got a symbolic headship over the Knights of Malta as it stands, and does card I don't know if Burke still has a diocese. I don't know how that works with him as a cardinal. Um, but nonetheless, these guys are extremely important. They're extremely important because they can confer the sacraments that you need to have a bishop's power to do so, which is very important for making sure that priests are ordained and that confirmations continue and all these sorts of things that that can continue the actual mystical body of Christ from progressing, okay? Um, but what it's going to take is... Whether it's a cardinal, whether it's a bishop, archbishop, whoever it's going to be, it's going to take a, a supernatural movement of prayer. Okay, this is why I'm very excited about this 54-day novena, for example, that's going on right now um, to consecrate the, the Mac, uh, Rush of the Immaculate Heart. Because <clears throat> in church history, there's been various times when God has appointed great leaders, um, and they've been popes at times, they've been uh, uh, bishops at times. And even under, uh, for example, uh, St. Joan of Arc, she was appointed by God to lead a great mission of Catholics that was very important for that nationality of people. So we've seen these things happen. I think right now the most important thing is, and this is one thing I talk about in my book, we can't control what the hierarchy is going to do at any time in church history. It's not, it's above our pay grade. So what we can, can do, what we can do is we can control I like the term that you had battle rhythm. So even when there's this time of uncertainty, we don't have mass on Sundays in some places, we can still make sure that we keep that liturgical living that we need to have as Catholics to make sure that we keep our spiritual life fresh. Um, and we can continue to cultivate virtue so that when the leader does come along, we'll be ready, you know? Because for example, when um, Braveheart's the greatest movie ever made, um, but when uh, William Wallace, when he goes, like when he's ready to lead, there's already soldiers there that are ready to go. That's a big thing. He doesn't have to put them all through crazy. This is what a sword is. This is how you use it. They all know how to do it. So right. it's like, we got our guy, we got our cause. Let's go. So we've got to make sure that we're ready for whenever the time comes. And I, I, Ken, I want to ask you about Lefebvre and the society yeah. and Bishop Fillet. And I know that the society is trying to deal with a scandal obviously yeah. uh, I'm going to set this aside for a moment, but just thinking about the right. history of the society back in the seventies and in the eighties when Lefebvre was basically uh, at least in, in the basic sense of, because to, to me, it seems to me that the, the leadership of this crisis needs to press the issue of hermeneutic of continuity. Basically. I mean, that's basically what Lefebvre was doing whether you agree with his methods or not, right. um, you know, we can all agree that the issue needs to be raised and addressed. And that's, I know that some of the talks with the SSPX later on in 2000s, they were saying, you know, they were, they were telling Rome, well, well, just tell us exactly how this is continuous or con continuous, you know, continuity with, yeah. with prior, tell us exactly how it is. And then Rome said, no, well, it is. Yeah. It, it just is, you know, and, <laughs> And so I think that that's really the issue that needs to be pressed. And where do you see the, the leadership? Because 
you know, Bishop Filet and the SSPX, maybe they maybe Lefebvre once got a lot of press in the sort of the mainstream mm -hmm. media, but it just seems like they're the SSPX is basically just ignored to me. It seems like you know, I never see any anything from any of the sort of more prominent news sources reporting on what the SSPX is saying or doing. Yeah, and that would be in certain countries where the SSPX is really big, that would be a little bit different. Yeah. They're really big in France. They pretty much are. I mean, now the fraternal South America too, right? Yeah, Argentina. There's one diocese in South America where they have complete ordinary jurisdiction. Yep. Completely regular. I, I can't even remember. I think it's Buenos Aires. Anyways. Um, well, I know in Buenos Aires, uh, Pope Francis's successor actually uh, lobbied the government to recognize the Society of St. Pius X in Argentina as uh, a legitimate Catholic order because then they get the benefits of the state tax exemption or whatever for the Catholic Church there. It's sort of a Catholic thing in, in the government there, which that's interesting. Um, <clears throat> but it's one thing misconception people have about the SSPX is that the bishops are the leader of the society. Obviously, um, they are in a leadership role because they have the office of bishop, but there is a superior general of the society, and that is um, Father Pagliarani, I think is how you say his name. I might be getting that wrong. He's an Italian man who spent a lot of time in Argentina, but he's a priest. He's not a, he's not a bishop. Um, there are three bishops right now in the society. Um, so uh, in the SSPX, they're pushing for Essentially, like Lefebvre would always say, listen, I was ordained with this mass. How come I can't say that mass today? So the the uh, basically the idea is that you can't say that on Monday. One way of being Catholic is the way to be Catholic. And then on Tuesday, that way of being Catholic is no longer a legitimate or lawful way to be Catholic. That just doesn't make sense. And you don't have to have a high-minded theological degree to make sense of that. That's just kind of, it does. It makes your common sense go off and go, Wait, I mean, for example, I, you know, in the Novus Ordo uh, world and stuff, of where there's obviously many great Catholics, I mean, they love Padre Pio, they love St. Therese of Lisieux, and they love, you know, all these, you know, St. Francis of Assisi. And I'm like, how do you think they went to Mass? I mean, do you really think Padre Pio, who is like struggling to lift the host because he's experiencing an internal stigmata while he's consecrating, I mean, do you really think he's going to come and look at your average Novus Ordo Mass and and think that it's a good thing, I doubt it, okay? So Lefebvre always just said, we've got to be able to maintain the traditions, traditions of our fathers. And he's been vindicated in many ways. Now, the limitations, though, was um, Lefebvre, as a bishop, had the power to ordain priests, which was necessary. Um, and Eric Sammons makes a good point of this, where he says, you might disagree with them, but humanly speaking, he did, doesn't seem like there's any other way that it would have continued supernaturally who knows we never know what god but at the time it is what it was um so but the the limits of lefebvre though is he didn't have a, a jurisdiction for a diocese so the sspx exists in this sort of uh this nebulous area now michael matt though he does have a good uh, analogy about the place for the society in the church and he says imagine you have sort of the fssp on the inside you know, they're sort of working around, walking through the walls, talking to the people and things. But then on the outside, you have the SSPX, which is kind of hurling cannons at the fortress, trying to help people get in. Um, so there's a place for them there. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what that means for the future for them, but they are an important piece right now because they offer something that um, 
especially when when we're threatened with things like never having communion on the hand again or tongue again, depending on the certain place, then it is nice to have that extra diocesan option, I guess, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have one time for maybe one question. Actually, I wanted to get your thoughts on from Vincentius, who says thoughts on military, mandatory military service for adult men. Should we adopt or mirror this? I know some countries do have this. United States does not. Axel, what do you think about mandatory military service? Well, I think that the military doesn't like to, don't want to keep away from the draft because the draft brought in volunteers who weren't as lethal versus those who volunteered that to, to serve. And then... So I don't think it should be mandatory. I mean, other countries do it because I think there's a shortage of volunteers. So that's why they mandatory. They they ask the country to for a mandatory service because they have lack of volunteers. We don't have that problem in the United States. Right. We got we got sufficient volunteers and we're more more lethal. And that's interesting. That's that's I think my opinion. Um, I know that for young men, they have to when they turn eighteen. And they they want to get financial aid have to to sign up for the selective service. So you're out from like age eighteen to twenty six. It's it's uh it's mandatory that you sign up for selective service in the, in the U.S. military. Right. So, so you, you can, can be drafted. You can, get, yeah, you can be drafted right. in case of a total war, a total declaration of war. Right. With men's ages to twenty six, but yeah. we haven't had that a declaration since like World War Two. I want to speak to Una Fides real quick, and then we're, we're going to wrap up. Um, the He says, here's a question. To what extent do you be- believe reinstating the oath against modernism would help to resolve problems in the church today? Um, now, Una Fides was mentioning in the chat about FSSP being forced by Vatican to renounce or stop doing the oath against modernism. I had not heard that. I had recently heard from SSP the opposite. So I don't, I don't know much about that. I can't speak to that. But I, I absolutely think that this would be so uh, this the the words of the orthodox modernism were particularly chosen yeah to safeguard everything and john paul ii saint john paul ii actually sort of attempted to reinstate something like it because yeah. in 96 i can't remember if it was 96 or 98 uh ad to fidem where there is a oath that he put in but he removed or did he just rewrote or whatever some of the crucial language which like the phrase same sense and same understanding which right. is in the oath against modernism so the oath against modernism basically that is the cure that you you get everybody doing that oath i mean that was that was what saint Pius x used successfully against modernism it can be used today i i def i advocate the for all the bishops to confess the declarations of truths from uh schneider and burke uh because that actually gives full force to a hermeneutic of continuity and explains exactly all the 40 particular errors. I think that that would be a great, um, help. Uh, but yeah, the oath against modernism. Absolutely. I, I totally believe that that. So, uh, but let's, let's, uh, wrap up. I want to pray for, let's pray for all service members. Let's pray for all, uh, military and their families, uh, as they continue with this and pray for the men of God to arise be sure to check out the 54-day novena. Just go to Fatima.org. It's, it's, I think it's on a banner. You can take a look at 
Kennedy's new book, Terror of Demons, Reclaiming Traditional Masculinity. If you become a patron, get both of these as an ebook. Um, but uh, you can get the paperback on Amazon, support Kennedy and his work. Um, Axel, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, we yeah. appreciate your, your thoughts and also your service to the country. Uh, Thanks so for having me. Yeah, man. So let's, uh, let's pray the Our Father uh, to close out. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. Name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Christ is risen. Risen indeed. Risen indeed.